from the Poconos and the Alleghenies and the Appalachians, they come tumbling. The rivers of Pennsylvania, the Susquehanna and the Ohio, the Delaware, the Monongahela and the Allegheny. Where they go, go trade and commerce. Along their banks, cities rise and the mills and factories that have made of Pennsylvania a great industrial state. settlers found a green land here, green and great with promise. They were Swedes and Hollanders, they were Welsh and English and German. They cleared the forests and they built their homes and they raised their churches where they might be free to worship in their own way. It was freedom they wanted, freedom and opportunity. In their frontier society, they learned to pool their resources in common enterprise. They created a democratic, self-governing commonwealth and they, they founded free public schools and libraries. Almost a century before the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania's Quakers drew up their own frame of government, proclaiming man's right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They pushed out across the land and fenced in the acres. Beneath the fruitful earth, they found coal and iron. They sank the world's first oil well and opened up the age of petroleum. They made of Pennsylvania a mighty industrial empire and left behind a matchless heritage of enterprise. But empires and industries never stand still. The true measure of Pennsylvania's greatness has always been its readiness to meet changing times with new ideas, new enterprises, and today, the state is going through one of the boldest periods of development in its modern history. In scores of communities, business and government, union leaders and private citizens are embarked together upon a statewide program for long-term industrial growth, the expansion of existing industries and the development of new industries. Behind them stands a state government committed to their aid and a tax structure continually being adjusted by its legislators to maintain an attractive business climate and encourage sound enterprise. In a formal resolution, the General Assembly has called upon future governments to examine all proposed legislation relating to business, industry, and agriculture in terms of its effect upon this business climate. 
But what gives Pennsylvania's program of industrial development its tremendous appeal is a body of economic advantages such as no other single state can match. Geographically, first of all, Pennsylvania is truly the keystone state. It lies almost dead center of the nation's most populous markets, and its major ports are so situated as to serve them all. The huge Delaware Valley port, centering around Philadelphia, extends over 50 miles from Trenton to Wilmington. Up and down the rivers of Pittsburgh, there moves each year a greater tonnage than clears annually through the Panama Canal. In one of industry's basic needs, transportation, Pennsylvania is first in the nation. Its superb network of highways and throughways provides rapid transport for bus and truck lines. It brings within easy reach by road, as well as by railway, the nation's densest industrial areas, with a population of some 55 million. bracketing the state, capable of handling the largest freight or passenger planes, no part of the world is much more than a single day's air journey away. The range of products Pennsylvania supplies for this global market is all but limitless. Traditionally, Pennsylvania has been renowned for the rich yield of its soil. Today, it is serving as well the nationwide demands of a growing food packing industry. Another of Pennsylvania's important raw materials has always been timber. From its forests still come some million cords of pulp timber a year and half a billion board feet of sawn lumber. For generations, Pennsylvania has been one of the nation's great coal-producing states, and its rich fields still contain a 500-year supply of bituminous coal. most favorite things to do on this podcast is to go over two haunted aspects of a state. It's the first thing I bring up when people ask me what this podcast is about. It's the one thing I feel that connects me to you, the viewer, and it allows me to learn more about the world. Pennsylvania is something that Nikki and I have a connection to. We both have family members that came from the original colony, and we both see it as a state that doesn't get much recognition. 
For this episode, we will introduce to you stories of the Smurls and the Balleroy Mansion. Two hauntings that are entirely different, but originate from the same territory. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this Pennsylvania episode. The Balleroy Mansion is a 32-room estate located in the historic Chestnut Hill section of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Built in 1911, the name of Balleroy was chosen by the owner, George Meade Easby, great-grandson of General George Meade, a hero of the Battle of Gettysburg during the American Civil War. Balleroy was the home for many famous antique pieces, like items from Napoleon of France, U.S. General George Meade, Thomas Jefferson, and others. Even though externally it seems like the perfect edifice, internally its rotten history has left a mark, a great combination needed for a haunted house. Family members and guests have been plagued by the spirits of the estate. It is never uncommon to hear knocking and unexpected footsteps whenever you would stay at night. It has been noted that a respected minister was hit by a flying antique pot that flew at him like a missile. Electrical fields in the house also attract lightning, and the electricity would go off for no reason. People, including family members, housekeepers, visitors, and even renovators, claim to have seen the ghosts that haunt the mansion. But let me backtrack to the beginning. The first owner of the estate was a carpenter who was said to have murdered his wife inside the main house. After the grisly end, the property was later purchased in 1926 by the Easby family, a family noted to have traced its roots to Easby Alley in 12th century Yorkshire, England. It is also noted that they have an ancestor that was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. After the Easbys moved into this large and spacious estate in 1926, George Meade Easby and his younger brother, May Stevenson Easby Jr., experienced the first of the many hauntings that bedeviled this mansion. When they were playing in the courtyard of the mansion and laughing at the reflections in the main courtyard fountain, they noticed something startling. What they noticed was that Stevens' reflection was just a skull. George's reflection was normal, but Stephen's was indeed a skull. Stephen died in 1931 from an undetermined childhood disease. As you can imagine, this destroyed George and his parents, but they continue living in the mansion for the rest of their lives. However, that haunting was only just the beginning. They, along with their housekeepers and visitors, experienced many hauntings throughout the years. Among the many claimed spirits were ghosts at Balleroy Mansion. One is said to be Easby's brother Stephen, whose portrait once fell and landed about 15 feet, 4.6 meters, away from where it was hanging. The string or rope of the back of the portrait and the hook on the wall were reported to be still intact. No one knew why it fell. Stephen's full-body apparition has also been said to haunt his room. Easby supposedly encountered it when he was a child. 
A number of people have claimed to have seen the ghost of Stephen lurking around them. David Belts and a co-worker were busy working outside in the back of the house when they claimed to see young Stephen looking at them from inside the house. Belts stated, I noticed a person looking out the window at me, a young kid with blonde hair. He had his hands on the sill and he was looking down towards the yard. I said to my buddy, look at that little kid. Then it just faded off. And my buddy said, man, that was really strange. The co-worker refused to work at Balleroy ever again. According to Belts, the co-worker would never come back. He was really scared. He just said he felt somebody was staring at him all the time. George's mother died in 1962 at the age of about 82, and his father died in 1969 at the good age of 90. Psychic Judith Richardson Hames claimed that she established communications with Easby's mother, Henrietta Mead Large Easby, 1880-1962, a prim and reserved Victorian lady of few words, and some other ghosts at Balleroy. Following their deaths, Easby hired housekeepers to keep the mansion afloat. However, none of the workers lived with him, and none lasted long. Easby remembered waking up and feeling someone clutching his arm. When he turned on the light, no one was there. In July 1992, Balleroy Mansion was burglarized by someone who seemed to know what he was looking for and where it was kept. $202,000 worth of items were stolen. George Mead Easby died on 11th of December 2005 at the age of 87. On July 9, 2012, the Belleroy Mansion was sold and all the antiques were auctioned off. This included 1954 Rolls-Royce Wraith, which was previously owned by Prince Ali Khan, husband of the American actress Rita Hayworth, and Easby's first car, the 1935 Packard Super 8, which was sold for $110,000. Ghost of Thomas Jefferson reportedly haunts the dining room standing beside a tall grandfather clock. Most of the furniture in the dining room belonged to General George Meade and was passed down to Easby's mother, including a large dining table. Another claim ghost is an unknown elderly woman that reportedly walks the upstairs hallway with a cane. She is always dressed in black and is always hovering in the corner on the second floor. Others have allegedly seen or heard a phantom 1930s car that would drive up the long and narrow driveway into the estate's parking area. When onlookers would go and look, there would be nothing to see. In the infamous blue room of the mansion, there lies a 200-year-old blue chair, also known as the chair of death. It is said to be cursed. It is said that when someone sits in it, that person will die. About four people supposedly have died, and Easby banned people from sitting in that chair. The chair is said to be owned by Napoleon. It is also said to be owned and haunted by the ghost of Amanda, a red mist that is said to kill people who sit in that chair. Also, the chair has also been made by an evil warlock in the 18th or 19th century. I don't understand why anyone would buy a chair from an evil warlock. I hope it was on sale. 
Weasby came to respect the many ghosts in his home and wished for them to stay indefinitely. He believed one of the ghosts to be his own mother, Henrietta, whose guidance from the other side helped him steer away from opportunists and bad business deals. Additionally, Easby claimed to have found papers from a great uncle stashed away in the cabinet, which ultimately led him to a sizable inheritance. He credited his mother's ghost with that discovery, as well as the discovery of a pair of valuable candlesticks hidden in the attic rafters, which belonged to his mother. So, even in death, Easby's mother was always watching over him. Seized by demons, a family desperately looking for help. That's been the plot of dozens of horror films, but in The Haunted, the story is based on the chilling real-life experiences of one family, a haunting that was documented by psychics and the Catholic Church. In 1972, the devastation of Hurricane Agnes left Jack and Janet Smurl and their daughters displaced. Jack's parents, John and Mary, had purchased a two-part house, so the Smurls moved into the left side while John and Mary moved into the right. 328 Chase Street, West Pittston, Pennsylvania, the home of Jack and Janet Smurl, is known for more than being the place where Jack and Janet spent their life together. There was something more sinister there, something that drew the attention of Ed and Lorraine Warren. A haunting so intense that the story would explode out of the couple's lives and into the pages of a book and onto the screens of televisions in others' homes. Jack and Janet Smurl had a normal family. They were considered pillars of the community. They were raising their family and attended church regularly. They had decided to modernize and update the old home to make it more practical for their growing family, though it seems that their efforts deserved something malevolent. It began in 1974. Loud noises, bad odors, and poltergeist activity began disturbing the family. Toilets started to flush themselves, and there were electrical blips frequently. At first, they thought nothing of it. Bad plumbing, old wiring, some things just happen, but things got worse. First, a dark spot appeared on the carpet in the house. They tried to clean it, but no matter how they did, it returned. Despite having installed new toilets and sinks, the water was running on their own and they were covered in scratches. Water pipes started leaking and when they repaired them, they would begin again. Soon, knocking began on walls and doors. It came in threes, a telltale sign of a demonic spirit mocking the Holy Trinity. The Smurls were a religious family. They noticed the pattern immediately, but reassured themselves that the house was old and settling, that there was some other explanation. Then, the smell came. The Smurls thought perhaps an animal had become trapped somewhere, died, and was causing the foul odor, but when they searched, they could find no source. Things got worse. Claw marks began to mysteriously appear on the walls of the home. They watched shadowy figures appear on walls and ceilings. Their eldest daughter saw shapes appear above her bed. The television caught on fire on its own. The radio turned on and off. They heard footsteps on the stairs, as if someone was violently running up and down them. 
Janet began seeing things. First, a black shadow. Then, she was hearing her name. She was alone in the home. Jack's parents heard insults and screams from Jack and Janet's side of the wall. They assumed that the couple was having marital troubles. This continued until Mary saw a black figure, the same one that Janet had seen. She knew immediately it was wicked, and she talked to Janet about it. Things were getting worse. It was only when things became physical that the family sought help. The family dog, Simon, was thrown into a wall. One of the Smurl girls was pushed down the stairs, and the home was always ice cold. A fan fell from the ceiling, narrowly missing young Shannon. More than once, Janet woke up in a state of levitation. Other times, she would wake up entirely paralyzed. But it wasn't only Janet who experienced this. One evening, Jack had fallen asleep in the living room, watching TV. He woke up paralyzed. Something threw him to the ground, what he described as an old, deformed woman. The woman stood on him, and remember, he was paralyzed, so he couldn't move. She began switching in appearance, from young to old, and he claims that she raped him. He described her gums as yellow and her eyes as red. The family needed help. They reached out to their church, hoping that an exorcism would be granted. But it was not. With nowhere to turn and desperately needing an end to the madness, the family went to the media. People were shocked by the reports, but it was Ed and Lorraine Warren who reached out to help. The Smurls contacted the Warrens, a pair of real-life Ghostbusters, for assistance. The Warrens videotaped the Smurls in the home. Lorraine Warren says their investigation of the Smurls and their house was conclusive. I walked throughout the home as a psychic to see exactly what I would feel. There was no doubt whatsoever in my mind that what this family was experiencing was sheer terror being brought about through the ghost syndrome. You might remember Lorraine from one of our March Marathon episodes last year. The couple were internationally recognized for working some of the most prominent cases of haunting and possession that the world has seen. The Warrens conducted an extensive investigation in the home and discovered that a demon was in fact haunting them. But it wasn't just the demon. There were four entities. There was a man who appeared in the shadows, Lorraine explained that he had murdered his wife and a lover a century before. He had been hanged by a crowd for his crime. There was an old woman, a powerful demon, and another force that they could not identify. Ed felt that the demon inhabiting the small home was very powerful. He noted that mirrors shook and furniture moved after they had attempted to persuade it to leave by playing religious music and praying. Ed described feeling a drop in temperature and then saw it, a dark mass in the home. Ed reported seeing get out in the mirror. They spent months collecting audio of the demon knocking things around and tapping. Neighbors reported that when the Smurls were not home, Screams, growls, and yelling could be heard from the home. The Warrens commissioned Father Robert McKenna to perform three exorcisms. The first two did nothing but make the haunting worse. 
The third time seemed to have been successful. It was a battle. Electronic voice phenomena recorded insults against the Warrens. During the exorcism, Ed was strangled by a demonic force. He took several days to recover from the attack, but the exorcism seemed to have been successful until the entity returned. Janet, like Jack, reported being raped by the entity. Daughter Karen fell ill and nearly died of a terrible infection, and Dawn, her twin, reported that, like her parents, she was raped by the entity. Janet and her mother-in-law saw bites and bruises all over her body. They could not escape the entities. They followed them to work while camping and anywhere else they went. The church decided against conducting another exorcism, as rumors began to swirl that the family was making these stories up. Professor Paul Kurtz of the State University of New York at Buffalo and the chairman of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal said that the Warrens hadn't been objective. He claimed it was less likely a demon and more likely a case of hallucination or delusion and that the family should submit themselves to psychiatric and psychological examinations. This followed reports of Jack Smurl having surgery to remove water from his brain in 1983 because he had been experiencing short-term memory loss due to a case of meningitis in his childhood. Psychologist Robert Gordon explained that, quote, People often look at demonology to explain many tensions that they experience as individuals and within their families. Feeling completely hopeless, the family left their home after 15 years of the haunting. Many still question the validity of this story. Was the family truly victim to four separate entities, all looking to harm them? The Scranton Catholic Diocese did investigate the house. And while Father Trabble, the diocese representative, had reservations about the Warrens, he did side with the family. He believes that something occurred in that home, but what it was, he couldn't explain. Thanks for listening. We appreciate each of you and love hearing from you. So hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at tales of two cities podcast at gmail.com. That's tales of the number two cities podcast at gmail.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe on the listening platform of your choice. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Spotify. A big thank you to my friend Ricardo for the music in this episode. We're a bi-weekly podcast, but if you just can't wait for the next episode, head over to Patreon and pledge for mini episodes and bonus content. We also have amazing merch in our shop at TeePublic. Head over and check out some of the badass merch we've selected, as well as our own designs. Again, we appreciate each of you. Thanks for listening. Until next time.